I only saw patients after surgery at two weeks or six weeks. I didn't know what was happening in between. Well, if we actually knew how they were doing day to day, then this gives us an early indicator. This is like the canary in the coal mine to tell us that something good is happening or something bad is happening. Welcome to the Insurance Innovators Unscripted, the show dedicated to innovation in the insurance industry. Each episode, you'll get a dose of thought leadership from the industry's top business minds, influencers, innovators, and executive leaders. If you want to transform your corner of the industry and exchange innovative ideas, you need to subscribe to this podcast. Now here's your host, Abel Travis. Everyone, welcome to the Insurance Innovators Unscripted Podcast, where we dedicate our discussion to insurance innovation. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to speak to Rick Hugh. Now, he is the Chief Executive Officer of Metrica, a company creating the standard in mortality and illness prediction for the life and health insurers and for wellness program providers. Rick, it is a pleasure to have you here to speak to you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, Abel, thank you very much for having me. It's been uh... It's a real privilege to be able to speak with you this evening. Yeah, you know, Rick, I got to tell you, I'm really excited. So when when I see folks that have a background like yours, uh, that's coming in from a, a, comp- a completely different industry and, you know, coming in to provide a significant amount of value back to the insurance industry, I, I always wonder what drove that. So even before we get into those details, Rick, if you don't mind, you know, talk to me about your history prior to becoming the CEO of Eva Metrica. Well, uh, do you have enough time? <laughs> so I, I don't mean that by uh, just uh, uh, so many things to talk about, but uh, you know, I, uh, I finished medical school almost 35 years ago, or more than 35 years ago, and uh, that uh, was the sort of uh, beginning of my um, uh, enamorment with, with data and with health and and uh, trying to understand the relationship between uh, numbers and, and health. And so if you fast forward a little bit, uh, when I was uh, uh, a resident in orthopedic surgery, we started to really start to see how uh, data was uh, influencing what we were doing in terms of understanding outcomes and also understanding treatment. And uh, I have to emphasize, I finished medical school just after the IBM PC was uh, was introduced, so you can imagine what the the timeline uh, looks like in terms of my experience with technology. And then, as um, I started practice in uh, in the early 1990s, the whole concept of using population health and, and large data sets started to become much more important. And then, fast forward again to the newer age now of the last five to ten years of uh, use of big data and use of uh, artificial, artificial intelligence, machine learning uh, methodology. Uh, and this started to become the, um, you know, uh, a place that we had to go. And so ultimately, um, I have been a practicing orthopedic surgeon uh, for the last, oh, I forget now, 20, somewhat 28 years. And uh, when we started Vivometrica, um, I really felt that this was an important field, and uh, uh, I actually stopped operating in 2014 uh, to really assume more responsibility and and uh, try to guide the company uh, forward. 
Yeah, so, uh, and, and that's very, very impressive just in terms of where you came from um, and, and what you've done, especially in the realm of being an orthopedic surgeon, um, but recognizing that there were some um, opportunities from a data perspective to, to leverage that data for the better, right? Um, and that seems like it's what helped to birth Viva Metrica. So, so, Rick, if you don't mind, you know, just for the audience, take a moment to discuss uh, exactly what Viva Metrica's value proposition is uh, and what industries you all serve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we actually, um, uh, our, our mission really is to, is to enable people to live better lives. And so that fits very much with, with my co-founders and, and myself's past history as health researchers and clinicians. And uh, the the actual sort of pathway to the insurance world uh, actually was a pull from reinsurers who started to look at new ways to underwrite uh, health conditions and, and longevity. And uh, this was uh, sort of introduced to us in, in uh, about 2016. And as we started to learn more and more about the insurance industry, we started to realize that many of the uh, analysis that we were able to do for health outcomes were actually comparable to risk measurement and prediction for uh, longevity and health uh, health um, um, uh, illnesses. And, and so it started to become much more uh, clear that this was a, an opportunity as well as uh, something that would align what we do for better health with the goals of insurers, uh, both in health and life, which is, again, to have better health and, and better longevity. So the fundamental thing that we do is we take small amounts of personal information from wearable devices and other personal sensors and uh, apply our, our population-based algorithms to uh, predict uh, different chronic illnesses, as well as uh, predict the uh, likelihood of, uh, well, the longevity mortality risk over um, appropriate lengths of time. Uh, so we do uh, more with less, I guess you could probably say that. And uh, ultimately, I believe that uh, these types of digital methods will start to supplant uh, full underwriting and make the journey for insurance applicants easier and also be able to provide a more engaging contact with the clients and uh, insurance members uh, by the insurance carriers and, and other people in the insurance industry. Yeah, so so that's that that's absolutely um, a space, you know. So especially as you start to talk about hardware like like wearables, um, and, and honestly, when when I talk wearables, I, I I think about it from the broader perspective of the the realm of IoT. You know, just given the fact that uh, the way that data could be collected from an individual could be through the device that's on that individual, or it could be through other devices that might be out there, like. Um, you know, uh, visioning cameras and those sorts of things. But, um, but you know, so you, you start to wind up seeing a lot of um, uh, opportunity when it comes to being able to collect that data from wearables to, to predict, you know, what you all are, are using it for, right, when it comes to um, longevity, mortality, um, and, and those sorts of things. And, and, and I wonder, Rick, you know, um, how exactly are you all gathering and synthesizing that information, knowing that, uh, that there's a multitude of information there could, could potentially be, you know, billions or trillions of data points, depending on how much you're collecting. So, you know, uh, how are you leveraging that information in order to, um, you know, build it into your algorithms to make those predictions? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And I, I think it, it 
you know, the answer to that comes in a couple of different parts. I think that um, the the actual uh, data needs uh, very much depend on the purposes that, that you're applying that data uh, towards. Uh, what we've taken we've taken the 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 sort of uh, pathway that uh, we want to make it the easiest and and least invasive, least intrusive to the uh, to the end end user, the end customer. Uh, I think we all realize that the data can flow and we can get large amounts of data. However, it it does present this whole question of you know who's in charge of that data and who is the steward of that data. And coming from the healthcare world, we saw that that sort of the free distribution of of uh, personal data uh, and the and the sort of um, just sort of obtaining that is not necessarily what people want. And in fact, we see a lot of this clearly in, in other industries. And so we, we actually did a, a deep analysis to see how we could get the best predictive methodology with the least amount of personal information and the shortest amount of personal information. And so we distill that down into uh, a number of um, variables. Uh, and of course, age and gender are, are important. But uh, physical activity, which is where we base a lot of our analysis on, is uh, by far and away a very, very uh, significant uh, determinant of, of health and of uh, mortality. And so uh, we've distilled it down to a small number of variables. And uh, so that sort of solves the, to some extent, solves that, that transference of data issue between the individual and uh, the insurer or the, or the healthcare provider that part of it. Uh, the other side of it clearly is that uh, IoT, as you've mentioned, is going to become um, and is becoming, it is not going to, but is becoming, has become uh, a, a significant uh, impactor on on uh, health and health assessment. Uh, I think that we're in a transition stage right now from wearables as we know it, that is we go and purchase wearables uh, to a transition point where the data will flow ubiquitously. That is, we'll be surrounded by sensors, we'll have sensors in our clothing, we'll have sensors um, in all manner of different uh, uh, parts of where we live. And the big question will be, who do we, who do we confer uh, access of that data to and how much data and, and what's the value proposition for the individual? And so I think that those are things that will happen and and we are actually seeing happen but those are thornier issues actually uh to to solve um when it starts when we start to make decisions that have an impact on an individual's life or their finances yeah and i i see that play out in many instances right even to the point where when you when you start talking about things like auto telematics devices and and it's completely separate from wearables but it, it's an iot device that individuals put in their cars um and then you know while um insurance organizations if you use the state of california for example are able to use that for discounting as, as one of the examples um you know what they're not able to use it for um, are things like um increases of the price and, and those sorts of things right and and i think you know as you start to to your point 
uh, determined that this information could be used for um, other things like uh, impact to financials or, or health decisions, it does really become a thorny issue because I think folks become somewhat skeptical. And the term that, that I've heard uh, being used is the fact that, hey, um, Big Brother is looking after you. And this is more on the personal um, in, insurance side, but but that that's still you know um, what I would assume folks might be thinking irrespective of what area of insurance the data is being collected. So, so, so I, I guess, um, Rick, you know, I have a, a couple of questions for you, right? So as you all are collecting this data, um, you know, do you find that um, folks are less apt to share that personal information with your organization? Or do you find that not to be um, a concern at all from folks? And then even with that said, especially as you start to talk about PII and then PHI from both a cyber um, and a security perspective, how are you all, um, you know, conf- how are you all um, ensuring that, uh, number one, that uh, maintaining privacy is in place as well as the security of the data that's being collected is appropriate um, in order to not um, go back and identify the individuals in which it's being collected from? How's, how's that playing out? Yeah, so the two very good, very good points, very good questions. Uh, in terms of um, individuals' uh, willingness to share information, uh, I think that uh, that yes, people are reluctant. However, uh, there's also um, there is also the uh, the sort of um, there are individuals feel that if they get value for the information that they're sharing and that it's an appropriate level of information, then they're much more likely to share. And uh, there's been some really good recent work done by the ITE group that really looked at this and identified that younger people are more likely to share and then that I believe it was about 60 or 70% of individuals with the right sort of value proposition to them are willing to share with insurers and and uh, be able to uh, receive some value for that. Uh, clearly, uh, individuals who are uh, uncomfortable with that would would not share, regardless of what type of uh, incentive or reward or or discounting might happen. So th- there is a, a subgroup of individuals which is, I believe, increasing, and that's where uh, our rationale of trying to keep the the information. Uh, to a minimum to get the best insights is is um, aimed at. Uh, if you imagine that the data that comes from a wearable device, it's already being shared. For instance, if you have a Fitbit or if you have some other wearable device, it's already being shared with with uh, the company and it's and potentially being shared uh, in, with third parties with de-identification, and so. The, the amount of information that we need to provide a pretty accurate assessment is actually less than that type of information that, that is being distributed. So one could say that there, there is uh, already precedent for that. Nevertheless, we treat it like, uh, like um, personal health information and like in the healthcare space. And for us, we're uh, SOC 2 compliant or SOC 2 uh, type 2 uh, compliant, and we're also GDPR compliant as well as uh, HIPAA compliant, uh, Canadian uh, PEPIDA compliant. And so uh, these are all sort of uh, things that are not normally sort of thought of in the insurance space, but uh, uh, for, for sort of similar types of uh, information. But uh, we see that, you know, coming from the healthcare space, that, that these are important. Uh, 
hallmarks of uh, of uh, credibility. Yeah, and in Rick, you know, as as we think about um, how I, I just w- I want to take this back to somewhat of a tactical level, right? Because you know we we've talked about wearables in terms of how the data is being collected. Um, and, and I wonder, are you all using devices that are already on the market, like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, um, or um, do you all collect data from other sources, given uh, uh, potential technology that individuals might already have, right? Like a smartphone, as an example. Tactically, how is the data being collected before you even intake it to synthesize the information that's coming out of it? Yeah, so the, the answer to that is that we're, we're agnostic to device and uh, our platform really is is sort of uh, a number of stages. One is the, the actual ingestion of uh, data. And so we have a direct connection through uh, via API, vendor API, uh, with the um, device manufacturers. Um, so that will cover off uh, a large number of the of the common devices. And then with um, the uh, iOS uh, ecosystem, um, of course, Apple is very protective of uh, uh, the individual's uh, uh, in- information and inf- information flow. And so in that instance, we have a uh, iOS native app that uh, is uh, available to uh, obtain that information from Apple HealthKit and also from the phone itself. And so your question about whether it's a smartphone or whether it's a wearable, uh, it can be either. And then we also have uh, ability to ingest from other uh, other devices. We also have connectivity to uh, Android devices with the Google Fit app. And so um, we spend a lot of time initially uh, uh, to uh, understand what the ecosystem would look like, and also, actually, when when we saw that Google and uh, and Apple were starting to aggregate data, we thought that's probably a good thing for us. We don't have to write uh, code to all of the all of the different manufacturers. And ultimately, our platform is designed so that it can be uh, uh, device and data agnostic going forward. Yeah, that is a that's a great approach. Of course, it gives you um, a much wider opportunity to to target a lot of people, especially with the the core mission that you all are are, are working towards. Um, just in terms of enabling people to live better lives, and uh, you know, just being that uh, with that being a core part of your your mission and your value proposition. Now, um, now Rick, I, I wonder, right? So I know you all are leveraging the data that you're collecting for the benefit of life and, and health insurers. Um, but I could imagine, right? You know, especially as you think about the property casualty space, but more specifically in a line of business like workers' compensation, where uh, there might be um, individuals. Uh, that are working in, let's say, manufacturing facilities or other facilities uh, that might be more conducive to health issues based on environmental challenges, um, you know, based on repetitive motion that might be uh, occurring on the, the contractor site, on the construction site, and so on and so forth. So, Rick, I, I, again, as, as you mentioned, you know, your, um, your algorithms are, are set up for, for life and health, but do you ever foresee a future in which you could leverage your technology as well as your capabilities beyond the life and health space, like in the workers' compensation line of business. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I, I think that the, well, I don't think, I know that the answer is yes to that. Um, of course, we're, we're really focused on the, the, the life business and, and the, 
and to some extent the health business right now. But part of our our overall view of the future is that uh, as sensors change and they become more refined or more available or um, just just present everywhere, as as you mentioned with IoT, then the analysis process can be applied in specific ways. And we've done some early work looking at uh, predicting uh, disability um, of individuals uh, based upon their their um, wearable device information. And we've also been able to do some work looking at uh, at um, the likelihood of someone remaining. Uh, disabled after uh, having certain levels of injuries and certain types of injuries. Uh, I I would say that right now that we're not pursuing that aggressively, but we have explored it, and um, it certainly is uh, a future opportunity. Yeah, that that's great, right? It it absolutely is, and and I personally, when I look at what uh, you all have done and, and, and what you all are, are looking to do, um, it feels like it becomes a natural fit when it uh, comes to health and life in general, um, you know, irrespective of the industry that, that you're serving, you know, from an insurance perspective. Now, you know, with that said, um, I, I wonder, right, you know, over time, if, if you specifically Think about the, the health insurance space. You know, we've seen costs skyrocket, right, it, 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 at least domestically here in the U.S. And, and I also just in other places a, across the globe. Um, I think the U.S. is something about something like 55 percent um, increase in premiums over a, a, a 10 year period. And, um, and that might be understating it. But to the point where um, administrations here domestically has been trying to enact legislation in order to curtail some of the challenges around health insurance and so on, right? Now, um, a lot of that uh, could be due, um, and you know, it, it's, this is disputed depending on uh, who you talk to, but, but some of it could be due to the data that's feeding um, the, uh, the, the information that, or, or the, the actuarial tables that's driving what the costs of some of these um, policy, what, what the policy is going to cost, right? Based on um, uh, issues with the individuals that they're covering. So things like pre-existing conditions, which has now been outlawed uh, here in the U.S., but and other things that might potentially be uh, drawing up, uh, up the, the cost for the basis of individuals that we're offering this coverage to. So, Rick, I, I wonder, again, you know, this is just, just a thought that I'm having or, or whether or not it's something that you are all already doing, but um, is your technology capability, the way that you all are um, collecting and synthesizing and analyzing and trending this data that's being collected, is there the ability to use it in a way that would truly help life and health organizations to really balance out the costs that they have to charge their customers um, in order to obtain insurance? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the health care cost issue is, is, I mean, it's universal and global, um, and we see the same issues in Canada, but it's the, the main insurer in Canada is the, is the government, and so... Uh, they have the same drivers in many respects that, uh, as as uh, health insurers in the U.S., they they want to get value for the dollars that they put into it. And um, you know, my experience in in healthcare, both uh, in the U.S. and Canada, has been that uh, better knowledge of the of the data and what's happening on the ground and and turning lagging indicators, which is cost, into leading indicators, which is sort of uh, preventative care 
and uh, and sort of proactive management is uh, going to be a much more effective way of of uh, containing costs. I think that um, the 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 current um, sort of methods of containing costs really are to do with you know sort of constraining usage and constraining access. And uh, and then you know bring up deductibles and all these things that are sort of negative, whereas uh, being able to understand who needs the care the most and applying that in those areas and then uh, identifying problems before they become large problems these are these are likely to be most effective. And going right back to why we started this um, as a clinician, um, I only saw patients after surgery at two weeks or six weeks or three months, I didn't know what was happening in between. And my thought was, well, if we actually knew how they were doing day to day and they could compare themselves to others who were doing well or not well, then this gives us an early indicator. This is like the the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, to tell us that something good is happening or something bad is happening. And so the the, uh, production of cheap and, and reliable uh, personal sensor wearable devices that that appeared to be the answer and I still think it is one of the big parts of the answer you know what that also allows you to do uh, it allows you to uh, benchmark the performance of, of um, you know and, and I say performance I'm, I'm using yeah, the wrong yeah, word no, but I, got, I got you on that yeah it, I understand it, what you're saying <laughs> yeah yeah and it does it allows you to to, to benchmark how um, one patient could be performing against another, especially if they might have similar health or, or risk profiles in some given way, shape or form. Now, again, I know in the industry um, that there are different things that influence the way that someone might get back up to health. But overall, even if you could, I think, normalize some of that data, it can it can give you um, an indication of what you could potentially ask of future patients that might be going um, through the same thing, right? So uh, I think that's really exciting, right? Because to your point, Rick, um, you don't only have to begin to collect that data on the front end um, or when you're uh, seeing those patients, right? You have the ability to actually collect it over over time at all different points in time um, as the devices are intaking that information so you can then start to you know, think more broadly as to um, how to serve your, your customer and how to bring them back up to health. So I, I find that to be uh, to, to be really exciting, right? Um, just in terms of how this plays out. Now, you know, with that said, um, I, I just could imagine just so knowing that you just took over um, full time and and you left your orthopedic surgeon duties a, a few years ago. Um, I could imagine that there are some challenges um, in order to uh, innovate this space as you have done. So uh, just just wondering for, for for some of the startups out there that are listening to you and I talk. You know what are some of the challenges that you faced as you started to get this company up and running? Um, that if you had an opportunity to do that, that you would do a little bit differently. Yeah, that that's uh, that's also a, a long list. I think that for for any uh, any entrepreneur, uh, whether they're experienced or or not. Uh, there are a lot of things that they uh, that they look back on and said and would say, oh, maybe I should have done something different there. Uh, I think that um, probably uh, among the sort of things that would, you know, would uh, sort of have have accelerated uh, where we're at was just the knowledge that uh, that 
um, when you start to get into a different industry that you, you uh, that it is a new new territory and that uh, and that um, you know finding uh, those individuals who can assist you who sort of know the way or who have experience I think that this is a very important thing to to begin with and we recognize that eventually but uh, uh, not having as many subject matter experts as necessary for the insurance space is, uh, you know, is one thing that I look back on and, and, you know, feel to be important to, you know, to have remedied and to remedy going forward as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I, and that's actually um, so, so I mentor and I consult with uh, a lot of insure techs that are uh, looking to, uh, you know, leverage uh, or looking to leverage their subject matter expertise to build out a capability for the insurance segment. And the one thing that I always tell individuals is that, hey, even if you don't have uh, someone as a part of your co-founder that comes from the insurance space, that they should either have a mentor or um, someone on their board or, or, or someone that they can go to to assist them in understanding how this industry works, because I think it's hard for someone to come from the outside and really hone in on how the inner workings of this industry is um, and start that from the ground up with absolutely no experience. Now, the no experience might give them an opportunity to innovate in a different way that a traditional insurance individual might not see. But still, you know, I, I think it creates somewhat of a challenge for organizations that are looking to do that. Oh, I was yeah, I was going to say I absolutely agree with you on that, and and um, you know, um, hardworking teams who are intelligent, um, you know, they can get you so far. But uh, there are nuances of 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 uh, any industry that uh, that really benefit from from the insider's knowledge, and uh, I can tell you honestly that you know, thirty five years as an MD. Uh, doesn't put me into the expert category in insurance, <laughs> and, and uh, it it counts for a little bit, but um, it is uh, it's certainly you know um, it it's an aspect that you know I I find to be really intriguing and and humbling. I think that it's you know uh, important to to realize that that you you need to have those individuals who who have that experience uh, to be part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now just thinking about um, just the, the life and health industry, you know, even outside of uh, some of what you all are doing in your organizations, what from your perspective are some of the other bigger challenges that's faced? Um, and it can be healthcare as well as life and health insurance. You know, what are some of the challenges that the industry is facing at large? Uh, well, I think that uh, clearly in life insurance, uh, the the, uh, the the issue is growth in in the developed countries or in the in mature markets, and uh, I think that this has been you know really uh, emphasized um, that that the 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 interest in life insurance and and the value proposition to the to the uh, consumer. Is not as clear as it once was. I think that this is because of uh, of changing demographics. It's because of the way that people work now. It's also because of the way that that um, our uh, younger people's lives are sort of set up now. I think that there are many things that make the typical life insurance value proposition much more unclear for 
for um, younger people. And I think the statistic is that, you know, less than 50% of uh, families in the U.S. Uh, are covered with some type of life insurance. And so it, I think that that is a big challenge to, to redefine and, and, and provide uh, a different or better value proposition in the eyes of the consumer. And I've always sort of wondered why term life or other life insurance products were designed the way that they were. And I think they were designed because of the way that lifestyles were and also because of the the, the actuarial and, and uh, business needs of, of the insurer. I think things are evolving, and this is probably, in, in my view, the, the big challenge, how to make insurance, life insurance, relevant to the, to the population and consumers going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, um, Rick, you know, one of the questions that um, that I always ask, right, and, and what I try to do in these conversations is, uh, you know, that we get listeners from all spectrums of the insurance industry, especially as they start to think about innovation. Right. And you and I talked about, um, you know, what you all are doing um, uh, in, in terms of innovating this space and, and your view as to, you know, why this is an opportunity for the industry. So so I try to ask two things. Right. First and foremost, um, you know, what do you all do within your organization uh, to maintain a spirit of innovation? Um, and then what advice would you give to others in order to transform the status quo within their organizations? Yeah, so in in terms of innovation, we have a very open culture. And, uh, you know, my my goal is to sit and listen and not to impose my thoughts on, on our team. Uh, at, at the end of it all, I that's why you hire good smart people uh because they are uh they're thinking on their own and they're able to to uh think perhaps not not in the same pathway that 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 I would think and that is actually a key part of it to to respect that um everyone has has an opinion and has, has ideas and that uh there's there's value in in following um, the the viable ideas uh, forward, and so we have a very open culture from from that standpoint, and, and so as an organization gets bigger, no question, it's harder to maintain that that type of um, uh, free and open flow of, of conversation. And you know, I, I've lived in healthcare all my life, and you know, this is not maybe not the most communicative. <laughs> Industry to be in, uh, and so I understand that uh, that uh, the hierarchy and bureaucracy um, make uh, make a difference uh, or impede things. Um, how how does a, a large organization sort of instill that? I think uh, clearly it, it comes from leadership and from senior leadership. Uh, I think that uh, that being um, seen to uh, embrace new new things and embrace change. And to and to listen to dissonant voices. Um, I mean, obviously, to within reason to not disrupt the whole business, but to but to listen to uh, opinion. Um, that that's why you have great people, and that's why you hire great people. And I think that keeping that in mind, and and uh, it, it does come from leadership to uh, to ensure that 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 innovation remains. Uh, a primary mission of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I absolutely believe that uh, to your point, you know, just from leadership from the top down, 
um, because it shows that the enterprise values, innovation and values, individual thinking that I think uh, when you uh, collaborate and when you coordinate folks from different backgrounds that might have different thoughts about how to execute on things, it's going to help you to, to come to a, a better outcome, you know. So, uh, hey, Rick, you know, I, I want to say thank you. You know, this was absolutely a great conversation and I'm absolutely sure that the Folks that are listening to this podcast are going to get a lot out of it. Now, if uh, folks want to learn more about what you all are doing or to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, they can visit our website at uh, vivametrica.com and uh, email is uh, info at vivametrica.com. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, Rick, once again, I want to say thank you. This was absolutely a great conversation, and I'm going to keep following Viva Metrica to see how you all uh, uh, continue to transform this space in the future. Hey, well, thank you very much, and uh, uh, I really appreciate you doing these podcasts because they give a they give an insight into the into the industry that is really if you're if you're not in the industry, it's hard to hard to appreciate, and uh, uh, I think that this is. Uh, you know that what you're doing has really been uh, helpful to sort of uh, bring bring uh, much needed uh, exposure. Absolutely, no. Thank you. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Insurance Innovators Unscripted Podcast. Now, as always, if this is your first time listening, hit that subscribe button so you can get all of the new episodes every Thursday. Also, go through the archives. You know, there's a lot of great gems out there in which you can learn a lot about so many different topics from AI to blockchain to digital acquisition to anything that's been playing out to transform this industry. So hope you're doing well and thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.